Hey, what's up? You look pained, con- constipated. Do you need an emergency enema? I've got my hose and inflatable bag right here. No, no, I'm just trying to remember my Gravavoy code for success in podcasting. I think it's 10131059110, but it might also be 11111105510 or even 10011060010. Sounds like number wang. No, it's real science, radionics, the science of numbers, accessing the very operating system of our universe. Mm, how does that work? Well, you center yourself and access the mental machinery that links you with the universe. Then, after you state your activation code and sync yourself with reality, you focus on the numerical sequence and, hey presto, reality shifts in favor of me. No, sounds kind of pseudo-scientific to me. Hold on. 31011020010. What? 31011020010. Repeat that after me. 31011020010. Brilliant. That's the Gravavoy code to make you believe in Gravavoy codes. You mean people don't believe in Gravavoy codes? Precisely. Hmm. 23016020. What's that? The code to start the episode, of course. Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy, brought to you today by Josh Edison and Dr. M. Denton. Hello and welcome to the Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy. I am Josh Edison, they with a spectacular pop of the cork there, uh, Dr. M. Dentith. We are both in Auckland, New Zealand, um, in separate locations at this particular time, but not because of COVID wackiness, just because of commitments on my part. Uh, not even sickness on my part. So committing yourself, Joshua, to things that aren't well, the podcast. Committing yourself to your do, partner. Do. Committing yourself to your children. Committing yourself mm. to your family, your state. I mean, really, where do your loyalties actually lie? Well, see, you with, you, with, don't, with, you don't have an answer to that, do you? You cannot answer I don't where the answer. your loyalties lie. In too many you are a traitor, a traitor to this podcast. Yeah, it's probably true. Um, what was I going to say? Oh, I'm not sick, at least. So I don't. I, I don't know. You you won't have yeah, to no, put no, up no, with Joshua, me you're not sneezing sick. and snotting this episode. You're not sick in the sense of you're not physically ill, but I do think yes. your loyalties indicate that you are mentally unwell. Possibly. Sorry, more. this actually got very sinister. <laughs> That's a little bit, yeah. Maybe we should bring. Uh, we, we have a new patron. That's that's exciting and positive. Tell me about our new patron. No, don't take a sip of your your filthy alcohol. Tell me about our new patron. Oh, they're not one of those patrons that we mention. Uh, we, we mention. We just don't tell them tell you their name. I think. But anyway, we it's have one. And thank they, you very much. Our mm. patrons are legion, and their names are mm. immaterial. They simply are the backbone of the very workplaces and homes that our listeners live in. You could be living with a patron right now, and you may not be aware of it. In fact, some of you might even be patrons without being aware that you're patrons. I'm not quite sure that that's true, but it sounds good. Now... This week it's time for me to tell him about a podcast, but 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 for some reason you're Sorry, going to no, tell no, me no, about you're one. Not, you're, not, anyway? you're not going to tell me about a podcast. You're going to tell me about a conspiracy. Uh, about a conspiracy. I mean, I mean, you know what I mean. If, if your conspiracy the is also a podcast, then you well, saved I mean, they, all the ones on this one are surely. So I'm going, to, I'm going to tell him about a conspiracy, but first him's going to tell me about a conspiracy because the world's gone topsy turvy apparently. Well, it's been it's been twenty years since Douglas Adams died, so it's actually been topsy turvy for two decades now. Because Douglas Adams died on the eleventh of May, two thousand and one. I believe he was in the UK, although I actually don't know why. I think he died in good old Blighty, as opposed to the US, where he often did spend his time. But of course, the eleventh of May 
is of course the 12th of May here. So we are actually talking about this almost two years to the day that Douglas Adams had a heart attack after using a treadmill for too long, given his bad state of health and being a chronic smoker. So arguably he he wasn't doing the right thing at the time, but that's kind of immaterial because we're a conspiracy theory podcast and I've got a Douglas Adams conspiracy theory for you. Let, let me have it then. Okay, so there has been a rumor going around in literary circles for a while now that one of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy books wasn't actually written by Douglas Adams at all, but was in fact ghost-written by his long-term friend and collaborator, Michael Bywater. Now, Bywater was the inspiration for the Dirk Gently character, and one of his notable claims to fame was that as a satirist in Punch magazine in the UK, he once took Burberry for task for not making trench coats as good as the ones they made in the Great War, World War One, and so Burberry actually made him a custom trench coat according to the 1950 design, which seems like a very unusual thing to do in this day and age. I can't imagine a journalist contacting a clothes manufacturer saying, your mm. coats aren't as good as they used to be, and then go, oh, we will make you one of those coats. They'll just laugh at you. But no, the story is that the manuscript for Mostly Harmless, the fifth book in the increasingly inaccurate trilogy of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy books, was so behind schedule that the publisher basically bade Douglas Adams to bring in a ghostwriter to finish off the task of the book. Now, no one's entirely sure how much of the book, according to this rumor, Michael Bywater wrote, whether he simply finished off a manuscript, or whether Adams, who was notoriously bad with deadlines, hadn't even started the book, so Bywater wrote all of it, say, maybe using a plot outline that Adams had provided. Bywater is credited in Adams' official biography as contributing to the writing, but this conspiracy theory goes that there is documentary evidence in amongst the papers of the Adams estate that shows definitively that if you were to apportion responsibility for the writing of Mostly Harmless, you would take Bywater to be the primary author, and the estate, which is notoriously precious about what's unpublished in the Adams archive, will not allow any information to come out indicating that maybe Adams isn't completely responsible for all aspects of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Mm. Mostly Harmless was the rubbish one. Mostly Harmless was, it, where yeah, it was, it was the pre- it was I, I thought really, it was just really dark Douglas one. I, I, yeah, I just thought it was when Douglas Adams wrote it when he was in a really bad mood and had said, yeah, I should probably write another one to actually fix it all up because I was in such a such a foul state of mind that it came out all dark and depressing. I just kind of pretend it doesn't exist, frankly, and the, the, the whole series stops it so long and thanks for all the fish. Well, I mean, many people would say that is the right place to end things, but unfortunately Mostly Harmless came out and then ends with killing off all the major characters. And then you've got the Ian Colfer book, which continues the story which actually manages to be somewhat worse than mostly harmless by simply being a really, really banal book. Hmm. And of course, this is important because argue... of course this podcast is named after the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Well, it is. Obviously. Sorry, you're about to say. You're about to say. Uh, a lot of people say, lot... argue. I mean, they do. They argue well, on the internet all the time. Hmm. One of the things they argue about is the order that you should read the Terry Pratchett books in. Um, a lot of people say you shouldn't just read them in the order they were published. You shouldn't start with um, The Color of Magic and The Light Fantastic. My personal view is that the correct order to read the Terry Pratchett books in is starting with The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and reading them. And then when you start at The Color of Magic and The Light Fantastic, you realize that, it, that the, those earliest books, Terry Pratchett was just doing Douglas Adams in a fantasy context instead of a science fiction one. And then as you read past that, you get to see him develop his own voice and it's all good. That's I agree with you opinion. entirely. I mean, I've I've always been of the firm opinion that Terry Pratchett got his love of footnotes from Douglas Adams. Mm. Yeah, the first there, book, are, there, the aren't, first few. there aren't that yeah, there aren't that many fiction books out there, particularly satirical comedic fiction books 
which use footnotes. Footnotes are not no. really part of fiction writing, and Douglas Adams used them a lot to do asides from the guide throughout his books, and Pratchett in the first few books is almost doing exactly the same by going, oh, I'm going to explain this weird bit of dwarf physiology, which obviously doesn't fit the narrative flow, but I really want to tell you about it, so here's a footnote. Mm. Anyway, we've got a little bit off topic um, before the episode's even started, so maybe we should just wrench things back, and I should start telling you about a conspiracy that hopefully, fingers crossed, you've not already heard of. It's time to play What the Conspiracy. Righty-ho. Have I got a conspiracy theory for you? Yes, okay. is the answer to that question. Well, now, I guess we should, we, we, we should do the thing that we've been doing. Uh, where you guess uh, where this conspiracy occurred, when it occurred. I, I, I don't want to spoil it, but it did occur in the past. So it's not a speculative one from the future that's been backwards to me. And um, what do you think this conspiracy theory is about? Okay, so the where, I'm going to go for Eastern Europe. I think you're going to surprise me and try and get me with a Romanian or adjacent conspiracy maybe you might oh, go you for can't be that bold mm. well you know mm, sometimes people like to get really close to the bone to see if they can slip one past me and thus i'm going to assume it's going to be 18th or 19th century because there's probably a lot of really good examples of conspiracies from that period of time and i'm going to assume it's political intrigue and murder Right, well, that's fantastically wrong. Uh, so I guess I'm and off on all, a good on a, in all axes of in the, what all the conspiracy. Really? Wow. Yeah. Uh, this conspiracy theory takes place in the year of our Lord 1985. Um, it occurs in the United States of America, and it's about sports. I mean, I'm almost I already out. Because who mm, cares about that was sports? the thing. That's we're not yeah exactly. I did a pub quiz last night. Our team did spectacularly and then totally tanked the sports round and came like fourth in the end. We got yeah, full, full marks on the one that was too. our bonus round, and 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 I got extra points because I knew the names and last names of all the mystery ink characters apart from Scooby Doo. But that's not important right now. What's important right now? So you, you didn't know the name of Scooby Doo. Well, no, we didn't have to. The, the question was, apart from Scooby-Doo, who oh, were the members of Scooby-Doo. Uh, knowing all the Mystery mm. Inc. characters' names and not knowing the name of the most famous dog would be... Yes. Okay, so, yes, yeah, so you've got Daphne, you've got Val, uh, Velma, you've got Fred, you've got Scrappy-Doo. And then there's that dog. Uh, now, what what's the dog mm. from the Sco Scooby-Doo stories called? Uh, is it... Oh, is it Fido? Fido? Uh, is it... Uh, is it scruffy? Anyway, silence. Silence. Do not mock my pub quiz flim flammery. Um, no, okay, let's get into this. I'm going to tell you a story. It's the story of Patrick are you Ewing. Turn, sorry, and are the, you going to turn my, my world upside down? No, I'm not. I'm going to tell you the no. story about Patrick Ewing and the frozen envelope. Now, now which, Patrick Ewing, is he is he the brother or son of Bobby Ewing from Dallas? Not in any way, no. Now tell me, are you familiar with the concept of the NBA draft? Actually, sorry, are you familiar with the concept of the NBA, the National Basketball Association? Actually, let me back up. Are you familiar with basketball, the team sport where two teams try to score? Actually, let me back up. Are you familiar with sport, the no. leisure activity that people take part in for fun and exercise? No, but it sounds. How can awful. I put this? Mm. Have you seen the 1992 odd couple sports comedy drama film White Men Can't Jump with Wesley Snipes and Woody Harrelson? No, I have not. Have you seen Space Jam? I've seen Spaced. Right. This could get this could get a little bit longer. I'm talking talking about basketball, basketball conspiracy theory. Uh, this story concerns the 1985 NBA draft. Now, if you know anything about the NBA, you've probably heard this story before, because from what I gather, it's it's kind of a big one. Um, but if, if, like 
the two of us, you are fairly sports illiterate. Um, there's a bit of background to get through to, to explain it all. So the NBA draft, like the drafts in various other sports leagues, um, is the annual event where the NBA teams get together uh, to, to draft players from the year's pool of eligible players, which are usually players who are coming up from college basketball, having played it, played amateur basketball in college. Um, also, I think foreign players coming coming into America wanting to join the NBA can be added to the pool as well. <clears throat> um, and it's a big deal. Um, all the all the drafts these days tend to be. Um, it's a big deal for the teams in the NBA who can potentially turn their fortunes around by snagging a good player. Um, it's it's a big deal for the players, obviously, who who have a spot of you know getting a starting a professional career and getting paid those those big pro NBA dollars. Um, and of course, the fans are very interested in it because the fans of particular teams want to see if their teams can do well and what players they're going to get. And um, that maybe they've been following these players, these up and comers through their college basketball careers and want to see them do well and so on. I don't, I don't know a hell of a lot about basketball, but apparently from what I've read, it's possible more so than in a lot of the other team sports. It is actually possible for a single star player to actually make quite a difference um, to a team's fortunes. It is possible to sort of build a team around around one or two good players. Um, and so this is what the draft is for. Now, at this point, I kind of have to apologize to our American listeners, perhaps, because when I read about how the draft works, I was genuinely surprised to see that it was quite sort of egalitarian and fair. Um, I was, I had just assumed that in, in the land of unfettered capitalism, the richest teams would get the best players and that would be how it works. Um, maybe that's true how it works in the rest of the NBA for the, for the existing pro players. But, um, fortunately, um, for all of us, I guess, <clears throat> The folks who run the NBA are, are, are a bit more forward-thinking capitalists uh, who want as many people as possible watching their games and buying tickets to see their games, and they realise that a league where a handful of wealthy teams always have the best players and always get the most wins wouldn't actually be that much fun to watch. What was, I, I was trying to remember, did we talk a while ago about an Australian sports team that everybody hated because they always did that? I'm sure it came up ages no. ago, but I could not remember when. I don't know. I think Once it was. Again, mm. I don't know anything about sport, and no. that might be because I've learned about sports in the past, and I've deliberately got nope. I am not remembering a single bit of it, which is a skill that Sherlock Holmes had in mm. the original stories. Was the idea you could tell Holmes things, and you'd go, "I don't think that's useful for solving crimes." So. I'm just not going to remember it, which is why Watson is so astounded by the fact that Holmes doesn't know the Earth revolves around the sun. Mm. Yeah, so well, pro pro probably not too relevant for what we're talking about now. The point is that in order to actually give a bit of equilibrium and in order to sort of even things out a bit, the way the draft works is that the teams who have been performing the worst get the first pick at the pool of players. And so, therefore, the best the best shot at um, getting getting a good player to maybe turn things around for them. Um, so, from its earliest days, uh, the NBA draft worked by simply teams got to pick players in reverse order of their win loss record for that year, with a few little exceptions around sort of uh, like you could you could you could get a fir first pick at players who are from the same territory as you, but you're sacrificed a pick later. I can't remember, but essentially. Um, whoever did the worst got the best pick. Now, can you see a potential problem with that system? I mean, well, first of all, as you say, it sounds incredibly egalitarian, but at the same time, if my team was, say, a middling team, so I wasn't a really high-tier team, but I also wasn't a really low-tier team, I might start throwing games in order to slip down the ranks dramatically in order to get myself another really good player. And given that I was actually a middling team to begin with, suddenly I'm going to be at the very top of the game due to the addition of my basketball player with plus two dexterity. Precisely. You've hit, hit to the nail on the head there, yes. So 
Under that I mean, system, they hit a lot of nails on heads in basketball, don't they? I mean, that's how the game is played. No, you you no, there are no a hammer no. and some nails, and you and you nail baskets to balls. That's why no, it's that's, called basketball. That that's carpentry. You're thinking of. That's, there isn't much competitive carpentry, thing. though. I'm fairly sure I'm talking no. about basketball. Well, we you, you're staggeringly wrong there, but you're completely right in that. Um, yeah, the draft system as it was gave an incentive to players to just to, to start tanking, to start throwing games if they weren't doing well, to make sure they finished as close to the bottom of the league as possible so they get as high a pick as possible in the next draft. Um, in, in the early 80s, the San Diego Clippers, apparently, managed by a man called Donald Sterling, had been doing a bit of this. Sterling supposedly at one point said, we've got to bite the bullet, we can win by losing. Um, and the Clippers weren't the only teams doing it. There were several other teams who who were noticed who who had were sort of seen to be throwing games, so ending up with a bit of a sort of a race to the bottom some years. Um, and again, obviously, this isn't fun to watch. Nobody wants to watch a game where one or both of the teams are obviously not actually trying to win the game. So they wanted to do something about that. So for the 1985 draft, the commissioner of the NBA, a man called David Stern, introduced a draft lottery. Um, so this was there was actually two reasons for this. One was to try and uh, combat this this tanking that had been going on. The other was that in the 1980s, the NBA was having a bit of an image problem. Apparently, there was. Um, Lots of stories about drug abuse in the NBA. Um, there were estimates that between 40 and 75% of the players in the NBA were using cocaine. Um, and there were various other scandals about, about some sort of illegal transferring of players or something I don't quite understand. So the idea was we'd have a, a lottery where the, the bottom group of teams would get drawn from a lottery so that the order would be randomized. So that would take away some of the, so being dead last wouldn't actually guarantee you first pick. Um, it would become a bit more randomized and also a lottery. Uh, they could make that a bit more, a bit more of a flashy affair. Um, you can, you can put a bit of pomp and circumstance into a, into a lottery. There's a bit of suspense going on so they could make it more of an event. Um, the, the drafts, apparently they started televising them in 1980 but it hadn't been that 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 flashy and affair. So the idea was that the 1985 draft would include this lottery to try and prevent tanking that year and in subsequent years, and to provide a bit of spectacle to take people's to to, to grab headlines and take some of the attention away from the scandals that were going on. So the idea was that um, the bottom seven teams in the league, there were there were twenty something, I think. There's thirty teams at the moment, but there weren't that many in 1985. Uh, so the bottom seven teams would go into the lottery and be drawn at random to determine the order they got to pick players in. So basically, um, finishing dead last would only guarantee you seventh pick. Um, you wouldn't you wouldn't be certain that you could do any better than that. So that's that, that's the system they came up with. At this point, um, I think I need to introduce the key players. So there's NBA Commissioner David Stern. We've talked about him. But the man of the moment was a 23-year-old, seven-foot-tall player by the name of Patrick Ewing. <clears throat> now, I've read a couple of articles and, and watched a few videos um, in researching this topic, and in almost all of them, Patrick Ewing was referred to as a once-in-a-decade talent. Um, during his time playing college basketball for Georgetown University, he was a three-time consensus first-team All-American. I don't know what that means, but it sounds good. He was two-time Big East Player of the Year. He was a national champion in 1984 and the 1985 National College Player of the Year. He had won Olympic gold as a member of the 1984 United States Men's Olympic Basketball Team and would do so again as part of the Dream Team in 1992. We're not quite up to that yet. But I think the biggest thing, if you want an idea of what a, what a sensation Patrick Ewing was, is that... He's referred to as a once-in-a-decade talent in a decade that included the year before a plucky, a plucky youngster by the name of Michael Jordan, who had been drafted into the Chicago Bulls in 1984. So, um, I mean, the actor who's in that Fantastic Four film, Michael B. No, 
No, the other one, the basket, the, the greatest basketballer of all time, one. Oh, um, never heard of him. Okay, well, he he so he he shared a decade, and Ewing is the one they're referring to as a once in a decade talent at the time. So the point of all this is to say that it was a one hundred percent dead certainty that whoever got first pick in the nineteen eighty five NBA draft would pick Patrick Ewing. He was the player that absolutely everybody wanted on their team. Um, now the other the other players in this in this drama and players in a more literal sense as well are the New York Knicks, uh, or to give them their full name, the New York Knickerbockers. That's not a joke. That's actually the name of the team. I, I kind of thought that was. I had a suspicion that that's what Knicks was short for, but I, I actually I had to look it up to verify for myself that it's true. The New York I mean, Knickerbockers. I mean, they should have just been called the New York Fighting Victorians. Okay, so, oh, yeah. That's going to give you the old the old one-two with the... The uh, Knickerbocker one-two. The old yes. Queensbury rules. Yes, that's how Ooh. we play basketball. We hammer baskets to balls, and then we punch you in the face with the old Queensbury rules. That's how the oh, New York Knickerbockers. Knickerbockers work. Yes. So in 1985, the Knicks weren't doing particularly well. Um, one of the one of the articles I read said they'd had their worst season in 20 years. Um, they certainly weren't doing very well. I don't know if they actually did last, but they'd definitely done poorly enough that they were in the bottom seven and would be included in the draft lottery in the in the 1985 draft. Um, but the Knicks are an important team because obviously New York City, most populous city in the whole of the states, um, in other words, the largest potential fan base for a for a, a successful team. So it was generally thought that a strong Knicks team would be good not just for the Knicks, not just good for New York, but would be good for the NBA just just overall. And this is something that basically everybody agreed on. David Stern, the commissioner, certainly agreed on that. Um, in the in the lead up to the lottery, uh, there was a New York Times article which said of Patrick Ewing, there is a strong feeling among league officials and television advertising executives that the NBA will benefit most if he winds up in a Knicks uniform. But there's still the lottery. So, 18th of June, 1985, is the day that the NBA draft lottery occurred. Um, True to his word, uh, David Stern had made sure that this was going to be a big deal. Uh, they had uh, a fancy set designed by a man who'd worked on presidential debates uh, on the 18th floor of the Waldorf Astoria Hotel. They had um, invited 100 guests and 100 more uh, members of the media, all in attendance, and I assume the players were there as well. Um, and so, th so, so they had it all worked out, how it was going to go. They had uh, seven big uh, big envelopes inside of which each of which was a foot square piece of cardboard with the logo of one of the seven teams in the lottery, and they had one of those good old fashioned rotating clear plastic drums for lotteries, and the idea was that these envelopes would all go into the drum, get tumbled around. Uh, David Stern, being the big moss man, would get to draw them out, um, and they'd be placed up on a big board in the order that they were drawn, and then once they'd all been drawn out, the envelopes would all be opened up, show the logos, and that would establish the the order that teams would get to pick their players in. Sounds and that's very basically... Game, sounds very game show -y. Very game show, yeah, yeah. They were, they were definitely going for a very sort of telegenic um, atmosphere. Um and so that's basically what happened. So uh, David Stern introduced onto the stage a man called Jack Wagner, who was a partner at the accounting firm Ernst & Winnie. Um, so it, like, like the sort of the big big award ceremonies and what have you, they'd, they'd um, gotten a third-party firm to sort of handle the, handle the envelopes. Um, so he, th this fellow Jack Wagner, he walks out, envelopes in hand. Uh, the drum gets opened up one at a time. He feeds them into the drum. Uh, the drum gets shut. The NBA's head of security takes the handle, turns the drum around a bunch of times, um, and then David Stern walks over, opens it up, takes a big breath. You can you can see him on the video. He sort of does the whole, and then goes in and starts drawing. Draws out all the envelopes, lines them all up. Then they get to the unveiling. It's all you know to keep maximum suspense. They start with number seven, work their way up to number one. And the number one spot went to, I'll give you two guesses, and I'll be disappointed if you need the second. Was it the New York Fighting Victorians? It was the New York 
Knicks, yes. Um, the, 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 the people who everyone had said were the ones who should get first pick and therefore Patrick Ewing um, were the one, exactly the ones who ended up getting them. What are the odds of that? So I'm assuming here the conspiracy is why are we covering up the psychic powers of sports fans who are able to predict the outcome? Because obviously they all knew he was going to go. And so the cover-up is, why are we denying this obvious evidence for telepathy? Not quite. Oh. Um, I say, what are the odds? Obviously, the odds are 1 in 7, 14.3%. Uh, um, and we've seen, we, we've talked about this before, uh, events with odds much smaller than that happen on a fairly regular basis. So it's certainly not Although in I don't any way... think NBA drafts using lotteries occur on a day-by-day basis. So probably because only a year-by-year thing, it becomes slightly more statistically unlikely. Yes, nevertheless... It's it's certainly not without not not outside the bounds of possibility in any way, but the fact that the result that a bunch of people, a bunch of wealthy, influential people wanted, uh, was exactly the result that occurred, made people quite suspicious pretty much immediately. So so the conspiracy conspiracy theory is that the higher ups at the NBA conspired to rig the lottery to make absolutely sure that Patrick Ewing would go to the to the New York Knicks, uh, which was the best best result all around as far as they were concerned. Now, it's all well and good. I mean, you'd kind of expect this, I imagine. You know, when it comes to sports fans and team rivalries and what have you, whenever, whenever things don't go your team's way, people like to say, oh, it's, yeah, it's a fix, it's all, it's all rigged, who knows? But... Um, it's one thing to make those claims, but um, you want to be able to actually suggest, well, first of all, how could it have been rigged? We, we watched the man come out. He, he threw them in. It was all tumbled around and randomized. How could you do that? So the story that gets used, that, that seems, seems to come up the most, is the idea that the envelope was frozen. It was a frozen envelope that, um, that Jack Wagner, who must have been in on it, um, before he came on stage, had kept the one envelope that had the New York Knicks card in it refrigerated somehow, so that after they all got put in the in the um, bin and spun around, the New York Knicks one would be would be quite obviously cooler to the touch than any of the other envelopes. So right, that just, 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 so, have you ever put paper in in a freezer? I can honestly say I have not. But presumably you've bought things like confectionery, which has been in a cardboard box yes, in a freezer. Yes, I have done such a thing, yes. The thing is, when you pull that cardboard box out to get your ice block or ice cream out of it, it doesn't actually feel that particularly cold, because it's not really the kind of thing which gets cold. So... A frozen envelope sounds like a conceptually great idea, but unless you've got a large chunk of metal inside that envelope, it doesn't really seem like the kind of thing which, especially when you put it into into a kind of lottery-like ball and start tumbling it with energy, it doesn't seem like the kind of thing which is going to stay cold for a significant amount of time. You make a good point. Um, and I would add to that point by adding that there is absolutely no evidence at all whatsoever for this frozen envelope theory there are as far as i'm aware no eyewitness accounts say of of um jack wagner fiddling around with a with a freezer and no no sightings of him drawing things out or putting them into a fridge no no stories of of weirdly located mini fridges sitting just backstage where there'd be no reason to have one or anything there's no Nothing to actually support this claim at all, as far as I can see. It sounds like talking about things afterwards, people said, oh, how could you rig a lottery like that? And someone said, oh, one way you could do it, you could freeze the envelope so he could tell by touch which one it was. And over time, that's gone from a here's how you could have done it to here's how they actually did it. So all in all, it's not, not a particularly good theory. But fortunately, there's another one. Is it they covered the envelope in slime? No, it's it's um Did they did they did they make the envelope electric so it tingled to the touch? Uh 
Oh, that could have been even better, but but no, um, it's it's even it's it's quite quite um charmingly low tech actually, because. If you watch the video in detail, and people have watched the video of the NBA draft lottery in detail as, as though it were the Zapruder film or something, you'll notice that when Jack Wagner comes in and starts feeding the uh, envelopes into the big plastic drum, he throws in the first three and then pauses briefly. Then he throws in the fourth one on a slightly different angle so that it sort of bangs against the side of the drum as it goes in. And then he throws in the remaining three. And in doing that, the one that he threw that hit the side of the drum actually ends up with one of its corners bent. Well, see, I thought you were going to say it had a magnet, so it ended ah. up being attached to the side of the drum. And so you might tell Ewing, you know, just you know, just reach around and find the one which is actually attached. But oh, so it's the old, the old bend the corner on the letter trick, eh? Yeah. Very so if, if you watch what happens, then he does throw them in. He does bang one against the side of the drum, and you can see that there is one one of the envelopes in there does have a bent corner as a result of being banged into the side. When D um, David Stern opens up the drum, he, he sticks his hand in and he does a good route around there. He doesn't just grab whichever one ended up on top. And when you look, the one he pulled out is one with a bent corner on it. And that was the one he drew first. So it, was, it turned out that it was the New York Knicks one that had the bent corner that he picked at the first time, uh, he, that he picked for the first position. So at this point, it becomes a bit of, it becomes a, a coincidence versus conspiracy thing. I mean, it could have, could have all been an accident. It's the sort of thing that could have quite easily gone wrong if that was actually the plan. Maybe he didn't throw it hard enough to bang the corner. Maybe he accidentally chucked another one in and banged the corner of that one as well. It seems like something that could go wrong. Um, and yet, you 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 can't dispute the fact that the one envelope that ended up with a slightly distinctive marking on it, and therefore the and the one that got picked ended up being exactly the one that they wanted to get picked. Um, and so to get things a little bit more sort of conspiratorial, people point out that um, the at the time in 1985, the New York Knicks were owned by a group called Gulf and Western. Gulf and Western employed as their auditing firm. Ernst and Winnie, the man who Jack Wagner was a partner for. Um, I also saw another video that that showed the a clip the clip of the draft and where David Stern says, "I'd now like, now like to call to the stage uh, Jack Wagner, who's a partner at Ernst and Winnie." It flashed up. Jack Wagner has never worked for Ernst and Winnie. I haven't seen that claim anywhere else, and I'm not quite sure where they're going at. But but supposedly there are people who sort of tried to bring in stuff to suggest that. That was all a bit of a fix and that Wagner was definitely in on it. Um, other people have liked to point to the reactions of the various people around. So I mentioned Stern's deep breath. He does, he, you know, he does a real before he before he reaches in and starts drawing. And some people have sort of said, yeah, that was the that was the sigh of guilt. That was him knowing he was about to defraud the the, the NBA fan base. And he See, was, I wouldn't go that's a sigh of guilt. I would have gone, that's a sigh of I better get this right. Better get this I, right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I suspect, I suspect there's an awful lot of money riding on this, and I might have a few broken ankles if I don't do this in the right way. So, okay, I gotta gotta really do hmm. this. I mean, does he spend a lot of time trying to feel around in there, or is it hand he really in does. all out? He, no, he, he definitely he doesn't just go in and out. He sticks his hand in and doesn't gives it a good rummage, which you could say is just him being extra thorough and giving them a bit of an extra stir up, or you could say is proof that he was searching for one particular Imagine envelope. Though, if you give that you you feel the envelope with the bent corner, but you go, I just have a, a little bit of you know stagecraft. I'm going to really mix things up. Go. Uh, I think I may have unbent the corner. Uh, hmm. I, I, I actually don't know which is the envelope I'm meant to pull out now. Oh my god! Oh my god! The the, the mafia is in New York. Oh oh god! This is this is going to go really badly. Mm. Um, and other people have sort of pointed out the the, the basic the the looks of smugness all round when um when it happens the the the, the self satisfied smile on the face of the manager of the New York Knicks and so on which I mean could be could be um, happiness that their their 
carefully crafted plan has has all gone as 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 planned, or it could just mean he's happy because he got exactly the result he wanted. I don't know. But since then, sort of little anecdotes have show have, have turned up. People claiming, uh, or, or it's certainly beforehand, there were people who were sort of sort of almost half half jokingly sort of saying, you know, you want to fix the NBA's fortunes? It's, it's simple, rig the draft. Um, there is a story, a man called Stan Caston, who was at that time the general manager of the Atlanta Hawks, tells a story where he was attending a college tournament a few months before the lottery, and he says, <clears throat> I was sitting with a couple of NBA guys, and I remember one high-ranking team executive, who I will not name, was a million percent convinced of what was going to happen. He's going to the Knicks, he kept saying. He's going to the Knicks. It's all arranged. I didn't believe him at the time. So the stories all the stories have sort of gone around, um, and at the end of the day, we, we can't we can't know the intentions of Jack Wagner and David Stern when they did what they did that day. Um, it really just comes down to the fact that um, people are made very suspicious by the the things working out exactly the way. Um, a bunch of wealthy, influential people wanted them to work out. Certainly the lottery did did what they wanted it to do. It uh, sure captured a lot of attention, um, took the heat off some of those scandals. It, it was doing the job as an anti-tanking measure, I believe. The, these days they've sort of fiddled with it around a bit more. There's a, These days there's a weighted lottery. I'm not exactly sure how that works. There's a bit of a random thing, but then they take other factors into it. Um, certainly worked out for Patrick Ewing. Um, obviously the Knicks got first pick, picked Patrick Ewing, immediately signed him to a 10-year, $32 million contract. Not quite sure what thirty-two million dollars equates to uh, in 1985 money today, but um, kind of depends on how decent... much cocaine he may have taken during mm. the 80s. Though I mean, it was the era of cocaine, mm. but certainly launched his career. Um, and so there you have it. That is the conspiracy of Patrick Ewing and the frozen envelope. I think it's I think it's interesting in that um, it's sort of the, the way it relates to people's suspicion of those in power. When you see the powerful getting their way, people people are quite quick to cry conspiracy. So I'm quite curious to know how big or small was this conspiracy? So you've obviously got the player, and you've got the person kind of organising the draft. So you've got the player who, of course, wants to be rewarded by being picked in such a way that they're going to be rewarded the best. You've got the person organising the draft who is interested in increasing the audience for the NBA. Were the Knickerbockers actually aware of what's going on here? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think Patrick Ewing himself doesn't need to be into it at all. He, he was the most he was the most sought after player that year. Yeah, so no matter he where had, he yeah. went, obviously he had to know to pick the envelope in particular. No, no it was it was Stern. Oh, Stern was sorry, the one. Yeah, right, all right. So actually, sorry. Yeah. So yes, yeah, so I. I yeah. No, I've got the wrong end of the... So, yeah, it really is just Stern and Wagner, potentially. Unless They're we the think two who had the to Knicks, be... Yeah, the, but the Knicks, hmm. obviously... Well, not obviously, but you might think the Knicks must have been involved in that. You might go, oh, it's kind of in our interest, and you're playing hard to get. Or is there no indication that they were involved in the conspiracy? I don't... I mean, yeah, I, I think it's just there was... Uh, like they say, what was the quote? Uh, strong feeling among league officials and television ex advertising executives. I think there was there was quite a large group of people who make money off of the NBA doing well, and who therefore would want the NBA to do as well as possible, and who all agreed that the 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 the, the best thing for the NBA would be for the strongest player to go to the New York Knicks. So um, while the the actual execution of the conspiracy probably only required a small number of people you sort of get the it's the whole sort of you know cigar filled back room style thing where there was there was a whole class of people who i think all agreed that this is what should happen and possibly not every single one of them went up to david stern and said make sure ewing goes to the next or we'll break your knees but um certainly there was a there was just sort of the overall feeling that this is what should probably happen were there consequences? 
I mean, no. I mean, obviously, the likes of David Stern deny to this day that there was any sort of a fix. It was just a random lottery, and it, that's just the way it happened to go. So, um, as you know, there, there was there was nothing there was nothing that could be a, you know there, there was nothing that a person could be punished for because there was nothing that officially there, there was no 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 impropriety um, that anyone's ever admitted to. Hmm. It was just, you know, it was just a one in seven chance that happened to come up, you know, not much, not much uh, less likely than getting the number you want on the roll of a dice. Okay, so this is actually quite interesting. So it is still technically possible that this is just a very, very convenient happenstance. Mm. Yep, could be. Interesting. But like I say, the fact that the result that the that the um the top folks wanted is the result that occurred uh just made everybody very very suspicious hmm now because i've been talking yeah i was just going to say we we we've talked in the past about how people will be suspicious of of governments and what have you depending on how things go but it's, it's interesting to see sort of other influential bodies basically getting the same having the same suspicions leveled at them now, of course, as we've been talking about sport, I'm going to do my usual thing, which is I'm going mm -hmm. to use my special ability to apply the mental diuretic that will then flush all of this conversation out of my head, thus ensuring that I contain no sports-related information whatsoever. So just let me uh, do that now. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I can't wait to find out what the conspiracy theory you're about to tell me about is, Josh, because it sounds very mm. exciting. What What is your conspiracy theory this week? I'm going to give a, a uh, two-hour dissertation on the complexities of the Duckworth-Lewis equation, which is the most obscure sporting reference I'm capable of giving, I think. The Duckworth-Lewis, is a, it's, it's an equation they use in cricket for working out when games get called short, how much, how many runs a team probably would have scored and therefore who did, and it's notoriously incredibly arcane and nobody knows how it works. Right, it's I another fact for you too. The, the yeah. mental diuretic to get rid of that sport information, so hold mm -hmm. on. Okay, so I can't wait to find out what the conspiracy is about this week. So Josh, what are you going to tell me about? Well, you'll have to wait for another week. Because it's been and gone, and you've had another one of your turns, I'm afraid. Just take my oh. word for it. It was very interesting, and you were very impressed. Oh, okay. I suppose I can always listen back, although joke's on me. I never listen back to our podcasts. No, why would you? Um, so yes, that's the end of that episode. The story of Patrick Ewing. I, I kind of almost felt like I should have queued up the Harry Potter theme music any time I mentioned Patrick Ewing and the Frozen Envelope. It, it sounds like the plot of a of a sort of children's magical fantasy novel. But yes, anyway, but we 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 shouldn't be giving any credence to J.K. Rowling. She's a terrible turn. Well, yes, she's not. She's not the the flavor of the month. Certainly, no. Um, no, although actually but, that, that, that has reminded me of the fact that due to the indiscretions of one Johnny Depp, how they're having to get rid of him as playing Grindelwald in the Fantastic mm. Beasts films, which then led me to think of, oh yes, he also played the murder victim in Murder on the Orient Express, which probably is his best role of recent time because he gets to be killed on screen by multiple people, just stabbing him endlessly, which is kind of the mm. role that Johnny Depp should be playing in everything now. And then being reminded that, of course, the as people have been pointing out on Twitter today, the press tour for the new Kenneth Branagh Poirot film is going to be very, very awkward indeed because it stars Army Hammer, who, of course, has now been credibly accused of being both a cannibal and a rapist. One of the side characters is now a prominent British anti-vaxxer, and Gal Gadot is causing ripples at the moment over her stance as to what's happening in Gaza. And people are going, mm. yeah, the, uh, the press tour is going to be a lot of very awkward questions about the main stars of this film. Hmm. Mm. Or a lot of very, very stringent conditions on interviewers, yeah. Please do not do not mention at any point the eating of other people's flesh. Mm. Or the, the shelling of the Gaza Strip, yes. Yeah. Now, 
less, less contentious is the fact that after we finish this episode, we're going to do a bonus episode. Uh, what we are, are we going to talk about in our bonus episode? Grab-a-boy numbers. Grab-a-boy numbers? Grab-a-boy numbers. And if you want to know what a grab-a-boy number is, I'm, I'm going to end up saying grab-a-boy, right? even though I know it's grab-a-boy. Or no, grab-a-boy. Yeah, I'm going to say grab a boy numbers because I just can't help but think of them as grab a boy no. numbers. If mm-hmm. you want to know more about grab grab a boy, no, grab a boy numbers. Yeah. it's already happening. The turn, mm. the turn is continuing. There needs to be there needs to be yeah. a number to teach you how to say grab a boy number. I well, think. there will be because there's a number for mm. everything. So if you've, got, if you've got dyscalculia, there'll be a number to resolve and solve your dyscalculia. So that would actually allow you to then resolve issues about not being able to use Grabavoy numbers. You know, if you want to know what these numbers are and why they're related to TikTok of all things, you mm. can tune into our bonus episode. And you can tune into our bonus episode, Josh, by doing what? By being one of our patrons. Um, Who are the so most lovely. The most beautiful, the most, lovely, the most luminous people of all. Mm-hmm, the most lovely and loved individuals around. Um, so if you are one of those, then you'll just have access to it. Uh, if you'd like to be a patron, you can go to uh, patreon.com and search for the podcaster's guide to the conspiracy and just sign on up there. Uh, for what do we? We we're still a dollar a month. Get you everything. Three dollars a access month. Access to the whole. You gets you talked about on the podcast by name, and there are there are high-level things which don't come with much more other than kudos. But we appreciate mm, kudos. Mm. We are. We do so much. Um, and th- that, I think, um, is all we have for you today. So uh, patrons stick around, everybody else. Um, you've heard me talk about sports for around 45 minutes. That's probably a good 40 minutes more than I've ever spoken about sports and other circumstances. So I guess you should count yourselves lucky. And because Josh has mentioned sports again, once again, I must apply the mental diuretic. So I'll be forgetting everything in just a few seconds time. The podcaster's guide to the conspiracy is Josh Anderson and me, Dr. MRX Dentith. You can contact us at podcastconspiracy at gmail.com and please do consider supporting the podcast via our Patreon. And remember, remember, oh December, what a night.